Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Before today's show, I wanted to give a quick plug for the Competitive Enablement Show. Product marketers and competitive enablement professionals looking for more great content need to check out Clue's Competitive Enablement Show, powered by the Compete Network. Every week, host Adam McQueen chats with PMMs, Compete Pros, CEOs, and investors from the world of tech and beyond to find out the tactics and strategies they use to get a competitive advantage over the competition. You can even listen to a conversation I had with Adam when I was fortunate enough to be a guest for episode 60 of that show, talking about how the best go-to-market leaders carve out a competitive advantage. Catch season three of the Competitive Enablement Show, powered by the Compete Network, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Evan Huck, Evan is the co-founder and CEO of User Evidence. Coming from an enterprise sales background, he has personally felt the pain of not having good customer stories and references, and that is the founding story behind User Evidence. Prior to founding User Evidence, Evan led enterprise sales for SurveyMonkey, and he scaled the social proof startup Tech Validate's revenue efforts from $0 to $20 million. This was a really great conversation. I appreciated how Evan opened up and talked about his personal leadership style and what he's learned both as a sales leader and now a founder of a SaaS company. We also spent some time talking about how building for sustainable growth is becoming a bit more in vogue and how that may impact not just venture investing, but also company culture. I found it fascinating that Evan is building his company from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for example, something that would not have been very likely just a few years ago. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Evan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate you having me. So I believe you're also in a mountain town. Am I right? Can you tell me where you are? Yeah, I'm in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um where it is still, it was negative this morning, which was pretty rough. The fun part is, is like it's a ski town. So it's like, we always, of course, love snow. Supposed to get 40 inches later this week, which is crazy, but starting to get a little tired of winter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I hear you. It's actually supposed to warm up here in Denver this weekend. It's going to get to like a high of high sixties, almost seventies. Balmy. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But we are, we're also... My wife and I are going to try to ski a bit on Saturday, so hopefully we'll get one of those warm spring skiing days, which I've heard so much about. Well, thanks so much for coming on taking the time. I know you've had a busy day. Um, I was on your webinar earlier, so you're you're a man of broadcasts. I'm practiced, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the lips are ready. but <laughs> Awesome. Well, I always like to start with sort of your intro story and your foray into tech and specifically... Here, I'd love to to figure out sort of how you landed on this concept of user evidence and how you came to co-found the company. Yeah, it's kind of random. So I, yeah, I graduated from Stanford in 2010. I was an econ major, and back then, like the cool thing to do was go into like finance and consulting, you know, with JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and all that. And so, 
I did a few interviews. I got like a suit that I wore once and just like, it was pretty clear. I was like, oh, this is not like my style. Like the interviewer was drilling me on the, the cost of like commodities, like gold and oil and stuff like that. I was like, oh man, I'm just out of my league here. <laughs> um, but at the time, like tech was, the startups were just starting to kind of peek their head out. Like my roommate was the founder of Snapchat um, and the guy down the hall did Robinhood. And at the time there were tiny companies, but it just looked fun. It's like, you know, you're hanging out with your buddies kind of wearing t-shirts and sandals, which was important to me as a surfer from San Diego. Um, and it looked fun. So I, I found this super randomly found this small company called Technology, and I neglected to get any hard schools skills in school. So I, I thought sales would be interesting. I'm not, you know, a natural fit for it. I'm a pretty introverted dude. Um, but it actually kind of worked. Uh, and I was the first SDR at this company called Technology. I was lucky to have great founders that were serial entrepreneurs and that were great salespeople themselves. Uh, and eventually learned how to sell and, and built a concise sales org of 60 people doing 15 million a year in ARR. And then we were acquired by SurveyMonkey uh, in 2015, um, which was awesome. So yeah, did the kind of journey from small startup to slightly bigger company. Uh, had a great time at SurveyMonkey running enterprise sales there. Uh, but yeah, just always, I love that early stage is so fun. Um, and it gets me fired up and passionate having been around this problem as a salesperson and, and not having had great customer stories to sell, uh, you know, it seemed like a good opportunity. So yeah, I was stoked to get back into the startup world and started this company, uh, a couple of years ago in Jackson. Awesome. I didn't know your background that you went to Stanford and I didn't know that you were roommates you were roommates with evan spiegel or uh his so bobby was in my grade okay. uh, they were both in my fraternity but yeah bobby was the other co-founder of my grade that we knew well what was in the air over there in california i don't know man if you invested in an index fund for our fraternity for our year you would have <laughs> made some money we, we someone joked about it we should have done an income sharing thing that would have been productive for all of us except the snapchat guys but <laughs> That's uh, that's pretty wild. Cool. Well, before we jump into user evidence and really get into the weeds on sort of what your company's focused on, let's take a step back and start with the current state of software sales and marketing. I can tell you from my perspective, running Fluvio over here, that getting access to customers and capturing their feedback is exceptionally challenging, and I think it's only getting harder. Um, we also know that in the current economic environment, closing deals is becoming difficult and sales cycles are stretching out. It's extremely important to prove value, uh, that your product is, you know, producing value for customers and you're showing trust signals that you're working with similar companies. So, you know, in my opinion, user evidence is helping each one of these areas and frankly, it just couldn't be more timely. So am I getting these trends right? Like what are you, is this sort of the space that you're operating in right now and the problems you're solving for? Yeah, man, it's, it's rough out there to, to put it bluntly. I mean, 10 years ago, like as a sales leader, I would just like mail merge and blast out a bunch of cold emails and schedule like 20 calls. And that was that. Now it's, it's so noisy because there's just so many vendors and then COVID obviously took away a huge in-person component. So everyone's gone towards a more, you know, digital based inside sales model, but uh, yeah, I think because it's so noisy and, and now like everyone's getting a little tighter and more conservative with spend and they don't want to make mistakes. Like there's just more 
risk aversion, which is why you see, you know, longer sales cycles. And the other trend that's interesting is like, you know, the more younger millennial buyers are just kind of, you know, not super familiar or comfortable with talking to salespeople and prefer to do research online. And so I think you get this sales process that vendors don't have a whole lot of control over um, and they don't have a great sense of like the whole first part of the buyer's journey before people get on a sales call, which is where a lot of the action is happening. People, you know, reading reviews on G2 or, or Gardner or asking questions in specialized Slack communities, trying to get insights from peers. Um, so people just, I think prospects trust in the voice of the customer so much more than a vendor these days. And, you know, for good reason, there's 10,000 vendors all saying, we're going to save you time, money, and make you more productive. It all starts to sound kind of similar and it's difficult to kind of differentiate or know, you know, know who's actually delivering on that promise. Yeah. I can also relate to a lot of that. We're, we're trying to stand up an outbound motion here for the first time ever. And it's been really just difficult. I started the business by just cold emailing some folks and yeah. sure it was, it was hard, but I was getting, you know, solid response rates and I was getting meetings and I closed my first big engagement that way. It just feels like it's gotten exponentially harder over the last year or two. Uh, yeah, it certainly has. We, we've seen declining kind of marginal effectiveness of cold outbound campaigns and I've had to get super creative with gifting and super targeted messaging. And yeah, it certainly helps. Like when we first started, like we would just say, Hey, we, this is what we do. Now we can at least say like, hey, here's three or four customers that are in your space that we work with. And obviously that helps, but it's, um, huge. yeah, it's a, it's a tough, tough cold start problem for sure. So you mentioned your foray into tech being an SDR and via that sales route, obviously having that sales background is helpful for you as you build user evidence because you know the problem space so well. But I actually want to take a more macro view and and hear your thoughts on how being a sales person has helped shape you as a founder and a builder of a company. What are some areas that you think have been helpful from your background? Yeah. And uh, my co-founder, by the way, normally the, the response to this question would be like, luckily I have a great co-founder who totally balances me out. Unfortunately, he also started his career as an SDR, so it's you know a lot of redundancy. Um, so we have two two founder sales leaders, um, and there's, there's pros and cons to that. Certainly, you know the the cons is like we can't code at all, uh, and we also never managed engineers. Um, but that's been a super fun learning experience, learning about that, and we were lucky to find some great engineers, of course. Um, the interesting thing on that front though is like it's just kind of cool to have the product leader also be the sales leader because anything that you build is gonna kind of by definition like immediately impact revenue or else yeah you know, we wouldn't prioritize it right so sometimes there's a gap between product and sales um, and that there's not that so we we build things you know, directly from the customer's mouth essentially um, and there's just no latency there which is I think a, an interesting strength um, the other thing for an early stage company is just like yeah, having a lot of sales firepower and, and two people that have built, you know, outbound driven sales machines, you know, helps you scale efficiently, at least initially. And so like, you know, having been in VC pitches recently, everyone's, you know, very impressed with our kind of cost of acquisition is, is, and they ask where these customers come from. <laughs> and a lot of it's just, well, you know, cold outbound prospecting and networking and this kind of, you know, brute force boots on the ground work. Um, 
but yeah, having not having to hire sales leaders right out of the gate, you know, has definitely helped us kind of get to this initial stage of growth in a super capital efficient manner. I, I would love to later on touch on sort of the, the venture space and what it's like raising money <laughs> right now in this environment yeah. and how you think about, you know, valuations we're hearing about. Yes. So many are being reduced by some 50% at times, uh, which we'll, we'll touch on. But going back into your background as a sales leader, it's funny as I've gotten to know you a little bit, you're sort of like a soft-spoken sales leader. Um, did, did you find yourself being very different than others in the sales space? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, maybe not the typical, you know, sale mold. Again, more like I, I don't talk much <laughs> outside of work. Um, but I think like for a more sophisticated enterprise sale, like you're not going to, you know, plaid jacket backslap your way into a hundred k deal, right? And just like so, I actually think having a soft spoken person who's really good at listening and is like smart and analytical helps build trust um, with prospects. Uh, as a sales leader, it's a little different. I mean, I, I've gotten totally fair criticism. Like when I had larger teams that like, I'm not the most, like, I don't, I suck at like getting up on stage in front of a hundred people. I'm like, like let's, let's go get them. Um, but I love spending a one-on-one -on -one time with people and I'm, I'm very good at that and training and development's a big thing for me. Um, so yeah, I'm probably not good. You know, I won't be the sales leader of user evidence in, you know, 12 to 15 months, hopefully. Um, but I think, you know, for this stage, I'm particularly well, well-suited sales leader. Yeah. Um, we definitely share similar traits and then I'm, I'm not the type of person that wants to get up on a stage and like get people cheering hundred people. Right. It's, it's not something I'm great at, but I think also it's like our company culture is not that way either. And I think that sometimes like that, like you kind of got in peak tech, you got almost like a cultish. Like, hey, like we're all family, which scares the crap out of me, right? It's like, no, not true. no we're not. There's, like, I have my yeah. own issues with family and yeah. shit going on there. Like, I don't need more family. Like, it's nice to have kind of the predictable arm's length relationship of like a company and colleagues. And so I think we lean in, like, especially coming, you know, being headquartered in Jackson, like people out there on lives are out there like backcountry skiing and doing cool stuff. Like, I'm not under the illusion that like, this is this is people's identity, and so I think I'm just kind of we kind of lean into that. Like it's you know we're it's company, it's part of your life, but it's not the whole thing. And yeah. just kind of having some normalcy around it and some humanness, I think, is is good too. How do you think about getting employees really engaged and involved in building the business outside of their core responsibilities? You know, like yeah, I, we've been growing Fluvia. I've been thinking about this myself. It's like I don't. You know, my hope would be that people feel a sense of ownership and, and want to sort of get behind the vision of the company and help build it. And so I give the opportunity for folks to do that. But at the same time, I know that not everyone wants to do that and that, you know, a job is a job to some folks. How do you think about that? I think that's okay. I think like as long as you're providing the opportunity for people to to dig in if they want to, but also creating the space for people that don't to not like feel bad. Like I, I would love, like an SDR wants to stay in their role for three years or something, just cranking it out. And they're, uh, they're the rest of the time they're a crazy rock climber going, you know, across the country in their van or something like that. Like sweet, like right on. Um, I think for the people that do want to get more involved, like uh, what I try to do is be very transparent with what's going on outside of their role. Like I've talked about with my company, how we're raising money. And we talked about like, 
how valuations work and why not to raise too much money because you might need to take a big down round and what that would mean for you and try to expose them to functions outside of just their job so that they understand how their job plays as a piece in the the kind of next level up goals. Um, and typically like smart people, like they want to grow in their career. And once you give them a picture of like how what they're doing applies to the rest of the company, they'll naturally figure out how to make stuff outside of their role better and they'll just go solve problems. And that's how you get people that step up into leadership roles is this, they just start solving problems outside of their role. Yeah, well said. And I think um, sort of refreshing. There's definitely some companies that, or some leaders in companies that think a little bit differently on that. So let's take a step back into uh, the sales motion. You mentioned that obviously you and your co-founders backgrounds were super helpful early on because you knew how to outbound effectively. How has that evolved over the last two years? And like, what is your, if you were to describe your go-to-market motion or model today, what does it look like? I mean, it's still like, honestly, kind of one dimensional. Uh, it's go getting more diverse, but like that cold outbound motion, like we have nine BDRs right now. So I wouldn't say it's gotten different. We're doing a lot more of it now at, at scale. And we're, yeah, we're pretty good at that part. The one nice part, I mean, you probably realize this, Devin, I've experienced this, but you know, marketers do turn over 25, 30% per year. And then luckily, you know, since we have really happy customers, they'll go to a new company and bring us in at their new company. So that, that's been a really effective channel. Um, I'm trying to do more content broadly. Like the tricky part for us is like, we're not in a defined category. Like if you're in CRM or marketing automation, like, yeah, you know, you need one of those. You go Google best CRMs and then you create your short list and reach out to the vendors. I don't even know what to freaking call us. Like customer content evidence automation or something like that. No one's Googling it. Trust me. Um, and so we, we've dabbled around like search and paid. Yeah. It's been, you know, limitingly effective. Um, but we will need to diversify beyond just the cold outbound motion. Um, and so we are experimenting with some product led growth stuff, but I don't know, may need some help for you to figure out how to do that. How do you do that? Like what, I don't know anything other than sales and just like brute forcing <laughs> a problem. So we're doing a lot of what you're doing. Um, I'm obviously different verticals, different things work. Um, but we we've historically just focused on trying to do really good work, generate NPS. That's our core metric. Inevitably that'll drive business, existing business with clients, but then also referrals. Yeah. So our business obviously different than SaaS, but we're, our growth has been pretty much 50% SEO folks, about you know, searching product marketing, consulting, and we sort of own that space and then 50%, uh, client referrals or to your point. You know, senior leaders go to another org and say, hey, we used to work with this consulting company. They did great things for us. Let's bring them on board. That's happening more and more as we've aged as a company. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it's just always so amazing to me when companies are like, yeah, we get like 70% of our leads from inbound. It's like, totally. But it's not, it's not sustainable, right? And so that's why we've been trying to, to figure out the best way to build an outbound motion that brings more predictability into our pipeline. And inevitably, that's what's going to allow us to to grow and commit to investing in growth because we're, you know, we're funded by revenue. So I, I can't place these big bets unless I'm feeling very confident that the next six, mo six months looks promising. Yeah. Uh, so that's a different challenge we have. Although I'm sure you have challenges with capital and figuring out, uh, you know, how, yeah, what your burn rate is and how and where. No, it's, 
that's the part I love. This is the part I'm enjoying most about my job. Like, uh, obviously, the, you know, I've been selling this kind of thing for a while, and so that you know, is relatively familiar. But the the whole strategic side of making bets around hiring and what's the market going to look like in 12 months, and therefore, like, how do we maintain a growth rate that still looks attractive to investors at a great stage without getting into dangerous burn territory? We, we then have to explore layoffs and stuff like that. That's a crazy, you know, conviction driven optimization problem right um that's a lot of fun like just you know when i was young like i always kind of thought about getting into strategy in a company which is hilarious and like i pinged my the guy that hired me first of technology like i think i'd be good at a strategy role like no one's gonna let some 21 year old like do strategy what are you talking <laughs> about like you have to do stuff and now it's fun to actually kind of get to do it but um but yeah that uh it is uh it's tricky and you have to make some assumptions and you have to make some bets and if you're going to be wrong a lot and you have to adjust quickly. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And it is fun. It's definitely fun. It's what I enjoy most about my job now here at Fluvia. That's for sure. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that you're not really sure what category to, to place user evidence in. And I also recognize, I don't think we did like a, what is user evidence? Yeah. A quick walk. For sure. So why don't we have you do that? And then I would love to get your thoughts on sort of, do you want to be placed in a category? Do you want to feel familiar to customers so that when you reach out, it clicks right away? Or would you rather be creating this sort of new nascent area that you have to do education around? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll start my well, user evidence. So our, our customers are all B2B tech companies. So it's people like Gong, Pendo, Mercado, Coupa, um, GitLab. So big, you know, decent sized tech company that sell a high consideration expensive products to other companies and because of that they need references and case studies and ROI data and competitive evidence and proof points and analyst reports and whatever to convince people to buy you know their thing versus the other six options in their space um, so part of that you, you need customer stories and case studies and testimonials and proof points but it's really hard for marketers particularly if you're selling to larger enterprises to get like imagine you're selling to like federal government or Goldman Sachs or something. Even if they're happy with your network security product, they're not going to want to go on the record and endorse it and talk about what their infrastructure looks like and all that. So a lot of people don't want to go on the record and talk. Um, and it's also just super resource intensive. So people, you know, they're interviewing customers, getting legal and PR approvals, having a designer turn it into content. So the problem we solve is that these tech companies have a shortage of customer evidence or, or customer stories, which might sound like, yeah, we're missing stories in certain industry verticals we're trying to sell into, or we need more competitive evidence to talk about why we're better than Salesforce or AWS, or we need more quantitative proof to back up claims around performance or ROI so we can have a more coherent you know, narrative around the value that we deliver. So what user evidence is, it's a web-based app that enables a vendor to capture feedback um, from their users and customers at scale, hopefully positive feedback, uh, and then take that positive feedback, but automatically transform it into good-looking, elegant, branded content like testimonials or case studies from individuals or statistical evidence that might sound like you know eighty-nine percent of customers saw return on investment in six months or less. So it's kind of like it's almost like a self-serve garter, if you will. It's like it's, there's this element of third-party research married with this kind of Canva-esque design automation layer with so we, we capture a bunch of really interesting feedback from real customers and then produce large volumes of content automatically in a in a SaaS offering. One thing I noticed when we first sort of met and, and 
I, I took a look at your company. It was funny, you know, use your evidence. And then I go to your website and I look at your logos and I'm like, oh man, these people, you have impressive logos. You're working with some really great companies. You're doing something right. The product you mentioned earlier today, um, <laughs> we're going to talk about AI. Who's not talking about AI these days? But you, you mentioned that one of the alternatives to the type of sort of outputs that user evidence puts together for, for customer marketers and product marketers is this forced or sort of like deep dive white paper research report. And I absolutely see a world in which AI, chat GPT, or whatever else comes out is able to pull data and information from the results within user evidence and actually produce a very thorough, in-depth research type report. Is that what you're envisioning in the future? Yeah, um, and it's not only from like some surveys are the primary way that we're you know capturing this research, but there's also honestly like a lot of really interesting data either in someone's existing business systems, like if they've done an MPS survey or something like that, or just out there on the web on Twitter review sites like G2, for instance. Yeah, I think like there's a kind of a declining influence of analysts like Gardner and Forrester in some industries, like in hardcore. IT, like if you're buying servers, which is, you know, SAM based storage, whatever, I think Garter is still really important because it's like, it's hard to evaluate those things. And then that expertise is pretty inaccessible and therefore more valuable. So people care like what Garter says about a particular space. If you're just evaluating, I'm evaluating Gong versus Chorus or whatever, I don't care what some like crusty old dude at the analyst firm says about these technologies because they don't know what they're talking about. Right? Like, I'm just going to go to, my fellow sales leaders that are, you know, modern and like are, are using these things and are kind of cutting edge. So I think younger people, you know, won't know who a lot of these analyst firms are and these kind of garden variety, you know, application layer type companies serving, you know, marketers and HR and stuff like that. I think they'll still do well in the analyst community. But the the backdrop for that is, you know, what we're developing they do look at a forest or total economic impact for it. They they interview like three or four customers. And then they come back with this four-page white paper about the ROI. One of our customers, Jasper, did a survey and they got 3,000 responses from customers. That's in theory like a much more interesting data set to then go make, you know, claims or inferences about, yeah, the strength of their customers and the value that they're getting. Um, Generative AI, to answer your question, is I think a really good way of kind of stringing together and summarizing and creating a text-based narrative around data, I think as we've seen with ChatGPT3, it's like, it doesn't necessarily stand on its own. Like it, it will just kind of make stuff up and you look at it, you're like, all right, yeah, that looks like English language for sure. But then you read a bunch of it, you're like, all right, this is not really saying anything. It's just like, it's kind of wandering. And so I think generative AI needs, you know, real factual data as kind of anchor points or bricks in this wall. Like ChatGPT3 is a great mortar to kind of smooth together these bricks, but you can't make an entire wall out of just mortar. Um, like it needs something real to anchor around. So I, I think we have a really interesting data set of um, actual real primary research from customers um, that would create, you know, really interesting research reports, you know, especially when you apply this kind of canvas design layer to kind of refactor in cool looking branded assets and social tiles and, and refactor it that way. Yeah. Yeah, generative AI is sort of like a translation layer, idea creator too. Yeah. But, but you you need to give it context and input. So 
to your point, if you're surveying a survey and you're getting 3,000 results and you're getting some qualitative data in there as well, you know, you put chat GPT or generative AI, whatever model on the back end of that, and you should be able to produce a report that's better than an analyst who's spoken to three people and who has some historical context, but nowhere near the amount of insight that that you all bring to the table. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah, and I think like better, you know, is a function of like relevance nowadays. Like I got, I was evaluating some software vendor and they sent me a case study afterwards that's like, here's how Pearson Education, yeah, which is like a 20,000 person education yeah. company uses us to do X, Y, and Z. I was like, that's impressive, but tells me absolutely nothing about how a 17 person SaaS company is going to have success with you guys. Um, and so that's like the cool part, like the Forrester Total Economic Impact Report is one one thing, but ideally it's like, we need to be able to quickly say, all right, let's create a report for healthcare customers. Let's create a report for SMB SaaS customers. Let's create a report for people that evaluated this specific competitor. So that you need 27 different reports because you have 12 different industries you're selling to, three different personas, four different competitors, five different regions and four products. The permutations on that get pretty gnarly. So being able to create collections of content that are more relevant for the target buyer, I think will reduce a lot of that you know, risk and uncertainty that we were talking about at the top of the call, which is why sales cycles are so long. It's because there's there's doubt on whether this thing is going to work for someone that looks exactly like me in my industry size, use case, et cetera. Right. And you you all integrate with some sales enablement tools where sales folks can go through and parse through based on those variables? Yeah. So like sales asset management tools, like we, we create a big library of potentially yeah, hundreds or even thousands of assets. Assets might be case studies, testimonial stats, whatever. Um, and then for a bigger company that uh, has you know a high spot or seismic or showpad or mind tickle, um, we can just automatically push or route our content into those content asset management tools, so they can search and filter and find our content alongside you know, other content that they've produced through other channels. And for smaller companies that are in the kind of you know fifty to 200 range, if they haven't invested in a sales asset management, then we have a library that is actually kind of useful where you can search and filter. Um, but yeah, for the bigger companies, you know, we want to, we want to push our content into the kind of last mile tools that are actually getting content out in front of prospects eyeballs. So sales asset management tools, yeah, sales outreach tools, like outreach and sales loft, uh, marketing automation, like Marketo and Eloqua, you know, social stuff, um, all those kind of firehose type channels. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. So now I do want to take this opportunity to get your take on the current state of venture. Um, <laughs> broadly, a lot's happened in the economy the last year. We've pretty much been in this this decline for a year, right? Interest rates are going up. It's harder to raise money. You're hearing a lot of kind of alarms being pulled. And yeah. um, I know companies, mainly companies, I would say like in growth stage, are feeling a lot of pressure being told to make sure they have enough runway to last, maybe even to to 2025. And then recently we had this whole banking crisis, but now maybe rates are going to be, you know, going down later this year. Surprisingly, there's just so much up in the air. So I, I just would love to hear from your standpoint, someone who is building a young company, has raised funds, will have to raise again in the future. What has it been like? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been interesting. <laughs> um, I think our approach has been one of 
being conservative, being prudent, um, not trying to over-optimize on like valuation, just like getting money in when you can, which seems smart in this environment. Like reality is like, this is all freaking, you know, first world problems that we have, right? Like, oh, what round am I going to raise that and stuff like that? Like the, the reality is, at least for me, I've, I've never had, you know, a big win or anything like that. Any outcome would be phenomenal and probably better than, you know, a VP of sales job, which would be my alternative, right? Um, and so I think, you know, we don't have like crazy, we're ambitious, but we're not, we don't have like a headlong journey to take over the world and IP or anything like that. It, we, I think we might have an opportunity to do something along those lines, um, but we're not going to mortgage that, you know, or mortgage our, you know, certain future at the expense of this crazy, you know, you know, astronomical goal. Um, with that in mind, I, I think, you know, like the venture market, a lot of times that scares people away. If I said what I just said on a call with a VC, they're like, screw that. Like we need, we have, you know, hundred portfolio companies and three of them are going to be billionaire unicorns and if the rest of them fail, then whatever. But that, that doesn't work for me uh, with a family and stuff like that, like living in Jackson Hole. So um, we've been selective about the partners that we choose. And, you know, the environment, obviously, like I, we kind of had a feeling it was going to fall off a little bit. So we the decent side, $3.2 million seed round a year ago, which was obviously great timing. Interestingly enough, like you are seeing a little like barbell style bifurcation of the market. Like for a business like ours that that's capital efficient, you know, we grew 4X over last year, but efficiently that's like used to be not cool at all, right? As growth at all costs. Now it's kind of like, you know, at least to some people, it's like, that's kind of cool again. So I think while it slowed down a ton, like we had a bunch of conversations where VCs were just like, we're not doing anything right now. Like we're sitting on money. That said, there's still a bunch of dry powder out of there. And if, you know, your LPs can get 6% per year, eventually it's like, you didn't do any deals in the, in the year. They're like, what are we, what are we paying you for? Like, what are you what doing all day? Um, but so uh, you, did you see a little bit of flight to like, you know, so-called like safer deal that still have upside, which I think we're kind of in that category. Again, it's turned people off. Some people off if they want, you know, the massive moonshot. Um, but some people are like, Ooh, like I kind of like this dynamic of capital efficient business that that's growing quickly. And so there, there's actually decent demand for that, you know, style of solid company. So we we're raising right now. Um, we have had like a lot of interest. We've got several term sheets, which is great. Yeah, you know, the valuations aren't ridiculous. Like last year, I saw some stuff that was nuts from people at our stage of revenue that were getting like 600 million posts, um, and that was wild. Um, and but what are they like, now? You know, yeah. What, now it's like know. now they're in also a trickier situation, right? And we don't yeah. want to be there either. So it's like. I don't know. I think we try to be honest about what we're doing. You know, obviously it's a VC conversation. There, there does need to be a bigger vision that it could be a massive company. And I think that exists, but it's not the only option. <laughs> and you're um, going to go about it in a sustainable way. It's Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, slow food, organic movement, right? Um, the, the same concept, right? Like we want to build good, longstanding, profitable companies that give us as founders like a lot of optionality and they're not dependent on capital at a certain timeline because if you get into that scenario then you're totally out of leverage and you're just freaking tough right yeah yeah you're toast um well you're clearly thoughtful like you've, you've thought about this and you, even in advance of i think some of the the real challenges and even back to our earlier conversation around how you think about work you know i think you think a little bit differently than than some other founders which again is is refreshing 
you also don't seem to sort of like take on overt risk for the sake of trying to tell a growth story. Um, I'd love to hear sort of why you think like that, how you think about your decision-making process. Um, like, are there some variables that you kind of run your head through when you're making a decision? Yeah, I think, uh, and don't, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I love risk and I love to, to gamble, which is, you know, one reason that started a company. I just try to like stack up chips either behind myself or when there's good odds, right? You know, the, the roulette scenario, or a, a crap scenario, it's like when you can bet behind the line, like definitely there's some more down there with those odds. Um, I think, you know, that came from probably coming from a self-funded company. Like we just weren't used to having lots of resources. So raising 6 million or whatever it is, that sounds like a crazy amount of money that I wouldn't even know where to start <laughs> going about spending it. Especially since I don't like haven't had much experience in marketing, which is, you know, one great way to spend a lot of money fast. Um, but yeah, how do I make those decisions? Like, I think we, we place small bets in areas and we place a lot of those small bets and we try to get some evidence. And then once we get a little bit of evidence, then we can, you know, significantly increase the size of the bet. Right. Um, but I think it's like going all in on a certain direction. Like I've seen a lot of companies now, probably because they have to, it's like, we're pivoting all in on AI, right? That's just like what it's going to be. And again, they might not have had another option, so that might be the right decision, but, um, you know, it's obviously an exposed position, right? Versus having a portfolio of small bets that could lead to bigger opportunities and throughout that process, understanding the market, getting feedback from customers that informs how much you want to bet on round two and round three. Um, it's kind of in our approach. So, you know, I'd call it evidence-based, you know, betting, right? Or sequential betting, uh, which is, you know, I think gives you a safe foundation, but still gives you plenty of opportunities to take take swings at much larger upside. Yeah, it's funny. I've had a conversation. I always ask this question with my guests and a lot of the times we net out on, and, and everyone on the show is generally someone who's taken risk. Um, but whenever we chat about this, everyone is <laughs> ubiquitously saying like, it doesn't feel like some of the decisions I'm making are that risky. And I think from the outside, people would assume that someone who you know, creates a company, founds a company, is this crazy risk taker. But if you go about it in the right way and you're really conscious about where you put your bets and, and, and why, then like to us, it actually doesn't feel that risky. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Like you don't seem like a crazy gambler type of dude. Maybe you are, who knows? But like I'm not, no. There's there's very normal, reasonable reasonable people doing this and you know, obviously they probably got through a sequence of steps to get to the stage where they felt comfortable, you know, taking a larger risk and betting more. Um, but it's not just yeah, you know, at least this environment right now certainly doesn't support, you know, wild all over the place risk taking, though it may have, you know, a couple of years ago. Um whether those businesses will actually see, you know, returns or not, we'll see. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting. I think broad like, like there's, I do like in tech, I, I am worried, like, and this is why we approach this with a healthy conservatism. Like there's this kind of, uh, this sense that like, if something bad happens, like war, climate, famine, et cetera, the first thing to go would be all this SaaS crap, right? Like you have like, 200 SaaS companies, if you follow the line, like they'll eventually like make Coca-Cola more productive. 
but you have like a company that makes Coca-Cola more productive and the 200 SaaS companies that each make each other in the line more productive. And it's just like, shit, there's like the gig. Have they found out yet? I don't think they have. I think we have like another 20 or 30 years and obviously the internet and technology is not going to go away. But it does pop up in my mind where it's just like, shit, are we creating like actual value? Um, but anyway, yeah. keep that a secret because we, we need tech to work. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah, there's a lot of software out there. There's a lot of software, yeah. But there are some people that, like, someone who I really respect and I would love to 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 meet one day is this guy Andrew Wilkinson. Are you familiar with Andrew Wilkinson? I've heard the name, but not super familiar. So he he's the founder of MetaLab, who is a design firm who actually we uh, partner with. I'm not sure if we're supposed to say we're we're just getting our partnership then, but they are. Um, they're a design firm that they're they're based in Canada. He's from Canada, and they have worked the likes of uh, Slack, Uber, um, a number of other like companies that now we think of as huge success. But they were working with them when they were like ten people, and so they sort of grew by helping these companies design their early products. Anyway, super successful agency business. Now he has sort of stepped beyond that and created a small holding company called Tiny and is trying to be sort of like the the modern Warren Buffett. And he actually mentions Warren Buffett a lot. Yeah. And he talks a lot about um, some of the companies that they they buy. So versus just investing, he tries to buy hold, co- hold companies for the long term, like again, like Warren Buffett. And he's starting to buy non-tech companies and products that he loves and that he sees just like in and out produce sustainable revenue and income i like that yeah i know that's right i also love just like any vertical SaaS i see i'm like god it's nice because like selling into those verticals like whatever construction or something like that they're always just like six years behind and so you just don't need the level of sophistication and anything that you produce is like gonna be magic to them so it's just like ah vertical any i always try to invest in vertical SaaS when i have the opportunity but yeah no, I hear you on that. We um we worked with a company called Truck Stop. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah, talk about a niche vertical that they just kind of dominate. I don't know. I think Uber. I I think Uber Freight is trying to compete with that. I don't. I haven't been following too Thanks closely. So. But um, yeah, vertical SaaS is definitely to have a very specific niche like yeah. that is, is a good position to be in. So. You know, we talked about decision making, taking risks. Doesn't sound like you're a huge risk taker, but you also, you know, have started a company. You play some bets. Sounds like you actually like gambling a little bit as oh, well. I love gambling. Yeah, I'm <laughs> wild in Vegas. It's, it's, uh... <laughs> well, I I don't know a thing about not, gambling. not saying risk taking in that model. But, uh, I do like <laughs> taking risk. Yes, I've uh, I've been to Vegas, but I, oh, I I'll, yeah. I'll do blackjack and that's about it. I'm like <laughs> I have to lose whatever I I bring to the table. Exactly. Yeah. But what would you what would you tell people who have struggled to make big, bold decisions or take some degree of risk who kind of like freeze up at that or are naturally just very averse to doing those sort of things? Yeah, I think it's just like you're never committed to it, right? There's there's always plenty of exit doors where you get you get into it and you can just stop. Um, particularly if you're in tech, like, you know, I mean, the job market's tough right now, but there's like if you're in a position where you can start a company like this, there's going to be probably alternatives for you for normal jobs if it doesn't work out. So it's like, 
trying to like, if you can feel somewhat comfortable and confident about some sort of safety net, obviously that makes it easier. Um, but I think like what happened for me is like, if there was no, like, I'm starting a company later, we're all in the, like, we're doing this. It's just like, like, oh, this is kind of a cool idea. I'm going to take the first step, which is just like, all right, I made a deck. And once I made that deck, I was like, oh, look decent. And then I like downloaded Adobe XD before I knew Figma existed and made like a, like learn how to do it, made like a water clickable prototype and wireframe. Oh, wow. We showed that to some people like, oh, this is cool. And then we're like, started talking to investors about potentially raising some small money. So it wasn't one like decision, like we're all in on it. It's just like, I'm going to keep trying steps and assuming those go well, I'll just try more of them. And eventually just, you've done a lot of steps and you have a company. <laughs> uh, my co-founder and I always just say to our employees, like, yeah, you show up enough and just do the stuff, you know, eventually like you make some progress and accomplish some cool stuff. I think you look at it from the outside and you're like, wow, that was like a crazy, that was like a fast journey or an incredible journey or whatever. But for anything, it's like, you know, it's just this, it's the series Seriously. of stuff people do every minute or hour or day. That's like not particularly magical or sexy or anything like that. That's just, you know, execution. Um, so yeah, I think that's how you stepped into risk is like, you just, take it step by step and you know it can always back out <laughs> yeah so we're gonna wrap it a bit but i'd love to hear from your perspective what do you think's had the the largest influence on you and that can be personally or professionally who or what i, I think definitely my experience at tech validate being the first salesperson and just learning how to get comfortable building stuff from scratch without any sort of playbook and just taking a relatively high level goal and being able to figure out our way there. Um, my particular, my co-founders of Tech Validate, Brad and Steve were both, you know, phenomenal teachers, um, very different people. And so gathered a range of different skill sets. Um, you know, I've also like, just candidly, like, yeah, I've always been pretty optimistic and I've been incredibly fortunate in my life. I got once got asked in an interview, like, Give me an example where you overcame some adversity. I was like, all right, well, I kind of, I understand the, the, you know, the notion of the question, you want to see how I did deal with difficult situations, stuff like that. But I was like, for, and honestly, like I haven't had any, um, and everything's just kind of worked out. So like that, I think is an ethos like that for me, it's our company and my founders somewhere. It's just like, well, this is all fun. This is all great. We are incredibly fortunate to get this opportunity nothing that bad is going to happen like it'd be the worst thing in the world from a company perspective but it's all totally solvable and figure outable and it's like whatever so i've been called like psychotically calm before um <laughs> and just and just like whatever yeah we'll figure it out no worries <laughs> that's a good, um, good and i think that's like a pretty that. can be an asset i mean there's, there's downsides to it for sure but um can be an asset in a startup when stuff inevitably is going to go wrong and blow up and stuff like that. So it's a good, good perspective to have. And it doesn't hurt that you're in Jackson. I think that that's a, a nice environment and you're, you're not in the, the California tech scene or the, the New York tech scene or hell, even the, the Denver tech scene, which is pales in comparison to those coasts, but you're in a whole different space over there. Yeah. It's kind of fun to be removed a little bit, you know, it gives you good perspective and good balance in your life, I think. And we get employees all share that and do a lot of cool, interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's healthy. I think like talking about sustainability, I think that's healthy, right? If you're going to go out to this for the long run, like when I was young and 22 and 23 out of college, like, yeah, it freaking 
worked a ton how to start out, but like now it's with you know, two-year-old and stuff like that, it's just more balanced, but I, I feel like it's more sustainable and you're not, you know, just heroing your way to short-term results. Like you have, you have to be pretty efficient and build something in a smart way if you're only going to put, you know, nine hours a day into it or whatever. Yeah. And maybe that's a good change that we're feeling throughout the tech industry. And honestly, maybe the growth at all costs kind of mindset going away will yeah. help push in that direction as well. I think that's true. I think that, you know, you see that theme in a variety of sectors from, you know, food to clothing to whatever, just the transition is necessary to more organic, sustainable, you know, potentially slower at times, but, um, more real growth. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's healthy. Um, the whole system venture capital might even shift a little bit to support that, but and even if it doesn't, I think founders can always choose to to build that type of company, regardless of what what's going on in the ecosystem around them. Yeah, it's it's a more realistic option now, I think, than people would have thought years previous. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. We're coming up on an hour. Um, this has been great, Evan. I know I'm going to be seeing your your co-founder Ray next week here in Denver. Yeah. So looking forward That'll to be that. Fun. Uh, before we jump, how can folks? follow sort of your journey or, or follow along um yeah connect with me on linkedin is probably the best way just have huck user evidence uh also just email me it's just having evan at user evidence.com um but yeah i'm always around pretty easy to reach awesome well thanks again and i uh, hope to to meet you soon in person yeah likewise thanks to appreciate it. it was fun enjoyed the conversation yeah cheers And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com resources. Until next time.